Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, a science-led biopharmaceutical company dedicated to elevating conversations about biomarker testing to improve outcomes for advanced cancer patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anise Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers is our way of providing you with the most up-to-date information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, Dr. Stephen Gore welcomes Dr. Charles Fuchs. Dr. Gore is Director of Hematologic Malignancies, and Dr. Fuchs is Director of the Yale Cancer Center and Physician-in-Chief at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Here's Dr. Stephen Gore. Charlie, thanks so much for joining me tonight. Steve, thank you for having me. And uh, you're a wonderful addition. Uh, so today we're not going to talk about that, but we are going to talk about your your academic um, clinical hat that you've worn all these years, which is in gastrointestinal malignancies. Is that right? That's exactly right. No, I've been doing GI or gastrointestinal malignancies now for 26 years. And so beyond my interest in leading the center, I want to continue that work because it's such a pressing need, and I've had the privilege in getting involved in prevention, understanding biology, and treatment of gastrointestinal cancers. How did you first get interested in that particular um, group of cancers, Charlie? Well, it's sort of interesting, um, and for me, it was a matter of really how it was contributing to the burden of cancer. I don't think people realize, but gastrointestinal cancers is a, a, a number of different cancers that afflict uh, our population. We know about colon cancer, pancreatic cancer, cancer of the esophagus, stomach, liver, bile duct, among other things. And what's incredible is if you look at the pie chart of cancers in the U.S. and you add up all the cancers that include gastrointestinal cancers, you're looking at 23% of all new cancer diagnoses in the U.S., and 31% of cancer deaths this year. Hmm. So essentially almost one in four new cancers is a GI cancer. And so when you look at that burden of disease and the pressing need for new methods of treatment and prevention, I just saw that as an opportunity I wanted to take on. Interesting. So, um, and we know that, uh, that a lot of these cancers, particularly the colorectal cancers, really can be detected early and cured if people get the appropriate screening. Is that right? Absolutely. I think colon cancer is really the model of early detection. Namely, colonoscopies are a very effective way of finding these things, either at the early cancer stage or even better yet, at the polyp stage, because we know that colon cancers arise from polyps. And so what's amazing about that method, in contrast to er other early detection methods, is not only do you find either the precancerous or early cancer lesion, but you can remove it. You're done. You get the test. It's gone. You're going to be cancer-free. And so it's such an effective means. Now, the problem is compliance. Mm -hmm. Just a substantial population of people don't get this type of testing. So you know we need to push people to do it at least engage in some method of early detection, colonoscopy by far being the best, but also there's tests you can do on the stool to detect blood or other things in the stool, which can be an, a, a screening test, not as good as colonoscopy, but at least something. Do you think the uh, problem with screening colonoscopy in terms of uptake 
is patients uh, not wanting it, or do you think the primary problem is access, people who don't have insurance or don't have the right kind of primary care education? Where's, where are the lesions? Well, I, you know, I think it's a, it's a variety of things that you touch upon. Certainly access to care is always a barrier when we look at effective implementation of, of good treatments and screening technologies. But, you know, the, the payers and the government has really tried to overcome that. That is, Medicare and Medicaid are supposed to cover colonoscopies. But I also think there is the barrier of perception. Mm-hmm. People don't want to do it. Uh, understandably, it sounds like it's quite an ordeal and, and people would prefer to just avoid it. As well, I think that we as physicians, and I include myself, I think we need to do a better job of making that part of the conversation mm-hmm. with our patients, which is, you know, you're 50 years old, we need to get you a colonoscopy, which is the current guideline if you're somebody without a family history. Realizing that if you have a family history, and I'm talking about just having one first-degree relative, a parent, a sibling, or less likely a child with colon cancer, you should be starting 10 or 15 years earlier, so Mm. between the ages of 35 and 40. Wow. Yeah, I'm probably one of the few people who actually signed up for my colonoscopy for 50 years and one month, and then I get to get my second one uh, next year. I haven't quite signed up yet, but just... (laughs) But, I, I feel great about it. I, honestly, you know, it, it's a it's a nothing but nothing test uh, with with the current anesthesia, propofol. That yeah. you know, you wake up and and the guy tells you you're fine and that's you're good for ten years. That's 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 great news. Absolutely, and I think there's really very few screening technologies that we have for any chronic ailment in the U.S. where you can walk away from the test and know not only whether or not there was something found, but know that it was removed and you're done. Now, pancreas cancer, on the other hand, that's another story, right? It is. Uh, and what's, in, what's really regrettable is it's a, one of the most difficult challenges we face in America today in medicine, and uh, it's on the rise. So this year, for the first time, cancer of the pancreas became the third leading cause of cancer mortality. And in the next decade, if we don't change that trajectory, it will be the second leading cause of cancer mortality. Hmm. And is that because the incidence of the uh, pancreas cancer is increasing? or It is. So the, the, uh, the, the frequency of diagnosis or incidence rate is on the rise for a variety of reasons. And unfortunately, it's really one of the great challenges of treatment. The problem with pancreatic cancer, as you know, is there's really very few warning signs. The symptoms are fairly nonspecific. It can conclude fatigue, sometimes some abdominal discomfort, weight loss, um, but things that people will often ascribe to other things. And also, even when you first develop symptoms, it's usually too far advanced. So the problem is when an American is diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, 80% 80% of the time, it's beyond the opportunity of a curative operation. Hmm. So I, I know that um, a large part of your work has really been around um, identifying those factors which contribute to these cancers in the environment and in people's behaviors and, uh, and potentially modifiable uh, risk factors. So could you tell us a little bit about that? And what, Please, what, what yeah. So. Now? And, you know, you asked me about when I got started. And, you know, I certainly got started, like most oncologists, with an eye of let's figure out the biology of these cancers 
and let's use that, let's leverage that knowledge to better treatments. And, and I, I look forward to getting to that point in this conversation. But, but the other aspect that I was actually interested in fairly early on is we got to figure out a way to prevent it. Mm -hmm. And some of that's through early detection, but some of that is through the phrase primary prevention. Because when we talk about early detection, we're not really talking about prevention. We're talking about finding it early. Sure. Primary prevention says what are the fundamental causes, either in diet or lifestyle, and how do we modify those causes to reduce the burden of cancer? And colon cancer, which is really the area that I got started with in the prevention realm, has been a real lesson, I think, for us all. Namely, I sort of took the interesting view of the following, which is if you look at the incidence or frequency of colon cancer diagnosis across the globe, you find out that in Western countries, such as the US, the incidence rate is 40 times higher than places like Sub-Saharan Africa. Hmm, 40 times. Right. So you might say, well, you know, that's because they just can't diagnose colon cancer there. It's not. Mm -hmm. Or maybe they don't get old enough to get colon cancer there. It's not that either, because if you look at the incidence per age group, it's 40 times lower. And so the last question you might ask, well, it's maybe genetics. People who hail from that part of the world, you know, their genetics, or they can't get colon cancer. But it isn't that. I'll tell you why. Because if you look at migration studies, people who leave those parts of the world, those underdeveloped parts of the world, such as Sub-Saharan Africa, and move to the US, within one generation, their family has the same rate of colon cancer as the rest of the US. Hmm. So it's something that we're doing in the US that's different. And so that's where I got motivated. And so I got involved in these very large prospective cohort studies where for decades there's these cadre of several hundred thousand Americans, such as the Nurses Health Study, where basically they asked these participants who were perfectly healthy, do us a favor, fill out this questionnaire 16 pages long every two years and tell us about everything you do. So that population of nurses becomes a cohort That's that you're right. following from forward thinking. Right. So forward in 1976, wise, right? 121,700 female registered nurses completed a 16-page questionnaire about diet and lifestyle, medication use, family history, etc. We get all their medical records, we get blood on them, and if they get diagnosed with cancer, we get all their records and their cancer tumor box for analysis. And they fill this out every year? Every two years. Okay. And the diet questionnaire is 131 items and it actually has been validated rigorously. And it actually, because of the nature of the questionnaire, not only do we know, for instance, how much fried chicken they eat, but because of the nature of all the micronutrient data within these foods, I can tell you how much folate they get or niacin they get. And it's all of that's validated because if we do blood tests on them, the measure we get off the questionnaire matches their blood levels. Although this questionnaire, if it's from 1976, way predates your involvement, right? That's right. But it's all prospective and it's asked every two years, gotcha. right? So I know what they ate. It's every even year. So I know what they ate in 2016, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's been, a, it was established, frankly, to look at cardiovascular risk factors. And from that, we learned about the, you know, the perils of cholesterol and smoking and a variety of other things that put you at risk for cardiovascular, which has been a gold mine 
in prevention of heart attacks, mm-hmm. right? Right. So when I got involved, I said, you guys are sitting on the mother load for looking at prevention of cancer. And uh, I'm an oncologist. I'd love to learn how to do this and work with you. And so, and I said, colon cancer is the ideal. There's something going on here that we're doing. And what did we learn? We learned that frequent consumption of red meat increases your risk of colon cancer threefold. Mm -hmm. We found out that people who exercise regularly reduce their risk of colon cancer by 50%. We learned that obesity is a potent risk factor for colon cancer. We learned that vitamin D is a preventive agent for colon cancer. And so when you add up the variety of things that we've looked at, we could explain roughly 80 to 85% of colon cancer. So here's the really interesting thing. We came up with a study in a companion study of male health professionals, right? So fairly well-educated people in the field. Um, And what we found is, is that if they do six simple things, they can reduce their risk of colon cancer by 85%. Well, we're going to want to know what those six things that we can do to prevent colon cancer, uh, but we're going to do that after the break. Uh, So right now we are going to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about gastrointestinal cancers with Dr. Charles Fuchs. Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, working to pioneer targeted lung cancer treatments and advance knowledge of diagnostic testing. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. There are over 13 million cancer survivors in the U.S. and over 100,000 here in Connecticut. Completing treatment for cancer is a very exciting milestone, but cancer and its treatment can be a life-changing experience. Following treatment, the return to normal activities and relationships may be difficult, and cancer survivors may face other long-term side effects of cancer, including heart problems, osteoporosis, fertility issues, and an increased risk of second cancers. Resources for cancer survivors are available at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as the one at Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital, to keep cancer survivors well and focused on healthy living. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Charles Fuchs. We're discussing the diagnosis and treatment of gastrointestinal cancers. Charlie, before the break, you were saying that you had done this study in, uh, I think, uh, adult male health professionals um, and found that there were six uh, modifiable causes or ways to reduce our our risk of colon cancer. Correct. So from the various studies that I mentioned that we had done looking at risk factors for colon cancer, we said, okay, we've been studying in individual items. Now let's look at a lifestyle. Let's figure six things that we can advise people to do that are attainable, right, that are not too harsh in terms of the requirement. And so those six, six things were, that is, avoid being obese, exercising two to three times per week, not having more than one alcoholic beverage per day. So one a day is fine, not more than one not having red meat more than twice per week, not smoking, and having a 
multivitamin that contained vitamin D. Hmm. So six things. We didn't think any of them were unattainable, right? You can have your red meat. Just don't do it more than twice a week. Just exercise about twice a week. Um, you can have a drink, but not more than one a day, et cetera. And what we found is is that if, if a man could do those six things, he reduced his risk of getting colon cancer by 85%. So did you actually test that? So it basically, we, it wasn't, we didn't actually uh, do a trial, per se. We just made them aware of it. I see. And saw what happens among people who comply with it. Now, you know, you and I are both physicians, so I'll ask you the question because I know what proportion actually did it. Do you want to take a guess? How many people? What, what percent of, the, of these health professionals, well-trained health professionals? Did all six? Yeah. 20. Three percent. Oh, so realize how difficult. And and none of that what I told you is 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 unknown to health professionals, or for that matter, I think so difficult. Well, but among those three percent, those brave souls, they eliminated their risk by eighty-five percent. Now, when you've studied all these factors, do you you said you've accounted for eighty percent of the colon cancers? Does this make up for the forty-fold? difference compared to Sub-Saharan Africa? Africa. This accounts for all of that. I wouldn't say necessarily all of it, Mm -hmm. but it speaks to the fact that much of that difference is our behavior, Hmm. right? And it makes sense, right? Because if those people move to the U.S. and, uh, you know, within a generation take up our practices, they enjoy, unfortunately, the same high risk of colon cancer. Let me ask you this question, um, which is this kind of kind of interest to me. We know that in animals, um, we sometimes can change uh, the risk of cancers in subsequent generations um, through various modifications in lifestyle that that occur through what we call epigenetic changes. And so I'm wondering, in these people who have moved from Africa and who have an increased risk of colon cancer through the generations. Um, is some of that going on that when they come to a Western diet, uh, are there epigenetic modifications that change their cancerous, do you think? Absolutely. And let me tell you, um, what you're saying is is really music to my ears that you're interested in it. Because when I first got started, really my uh, the, the available resource was the questionnaire data, right, which was a goldmine, as I said. But I really, you and I obviously as oncologists want to understand cancer biology. Sure. And so the other aspect of this study that we convinced the participants to do was when you were diagnosed with colon cancer or any other cancer, have the hospital send us the tumor for analysis in a molecular laboratory. Mm -hmm. And so where are we at now? What do these things do in terms of biology? be it epigenetic changes in the DNA, certain mutations, certain changes in some biochemical features of the blood or the cell that actually is creating cancer. And that what we're finding is you can actually understand these things and how they're driving the molecular basis of cancer. They really, there really is a relationship. So people who are obese, who are sedentary, they get biochemical changes in their circulation and there is clearly a footprint a, a essentially a fingerprint of changes in the cancer that speaks to the fact that energy balance pathways, as they're often referred to, because you're sedentary, because you're obese, are activated in a way that promotes cancer. 
Well, then, I think you're going to motivate me for the next 24 to 48 hours to get back on the scale and re-up my Weight Watchers um, tracking. But like I say, whether that motivation lasts through next Sunday, uh, we'll see. I'll keep you on. <laughs> All right. We'll have, to re- we'll have to report back. We'll have you back next year, and I'll weigh in for everybody. Um, so I, uh, thanks, Charlie. That's, that's really fascinating uh, information. And, you know, we... I think it's so clear that uh, that basic um, elements of, of lifestyle in our in our society, including smoking and obesity, impact uh, the public health so greatly. And yet, as I can say, as a motivated physician who likes to be thinner and who does exercise regularly, uh, and as you quote from your from your motivated health professionals in your previous experience, you know it's not so easy. You know, you can say, well, you know, get to a healthy weight or a healthy body mass index, and you know, for some of us, that's just not easy. You know? It isn't. But, you know, we have to stay on it, right? Because this, we are obliged to use these studies and improve the lives of people at risk. And I'll tell you one other anecdote, which is, you know, you know the people who actually are most interested in these data are not healthy people. Because as you rightly point out, even physicians don't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, the people who are most motivated are people ri- recently diagnosed with cancer. And what we know from studies is that 75% of newly diagnosed cancer patients believe that there is a diet, lifestyle, or supplement that will modify their likelihood of cure. Right? Right. You know that because you hear it in clinic too. All the time. And there are studies that show it. And the sad truth is, is that um, even though patients believe it, there have been not been rigorous studies to test that, right? Because all the studies I just quoted to you are studies of healthy people looking at the risk of developing colon cancer. But the, the more relevant question for a patient is, if you've now been diagnosed with colon cancer, does diet or lifestyle matter now? So we've actually embarked 10 years ago on the same studies, except instead of asking healthy people, we've now been asking thousands of newly diagnosed cancer patients to fill out these same questionnaires and see whether their diet or lifestyle changes the, the success of cure for their cancer. Hmm. And I can tell you today that we're actually starting to get information and much like the risk data, exercise, avoiding obesity, healthy diets, improve the success of treatment for cancer patients. Well, that's fascinating. You know, it's been my experience with patients that uh, this great interest in nutritional supplements and so on uh, means that they want to be able to go to, many patients want to be able to go to the GNC store or go online and get some berry from Tahiti or something that somehow we're keeping a secret, the medical establishment is keeping from a secret, and be able to spend a lot of money on some untested thing. And I'm not trying to make fun of anybody. This is These are people who are really doing research, <laughs> wanting to help themselves. But if it really means losing 30 pounds, that might be a different story. Not that they might not want to, um, but it's one thing to take pills that they no. perceive as safe and another thing to really modify lifestyle. This is not trivial. Absolutely. And you're absolutely right. Those supplements are a $20 billion industry. It's purely anecdotal. And what what I tell a patient newly diagnosed with cancer is that for most cancers and most studies, if you were to exercise two to three times per week, which if you look at studies of cancer patients, is not running 
long distances in the gym. It's walking. Mm. We did a study of colon cancer patients, and individuals who walked regularly significantly improved their likelihood of cure. Hmm. And of course, here at Yale, we have Melinda Irwin's really wonderful work looking at the influence of exercise on breast cancer survivorship. It's a, it's a common thread. And so we've looked at a few other things, for instance, in colon cancer patients. There have been studies saying that in addition to taking their prescribed treatment, that if they take an aspirin a day, it improves the likelihood of cure for colon cancer patients. Not all vitamins probably matter, but there's evidence that vitamin D can improve the success rate of treatment in colon cancer. And we just recently completed a clinical trial of adding vitamin D to standard colon cancer therapy. So we, you know, we want to study these things. And let me emphasize, in contrast to the anecdotes that we are frustrated with, we want to study these things with the same rigor as we would a new drug or a biological phenomenon, so that at the end of the day, we get people the right answers. And vitamin D is good for your bones on top of it, right? Exactly. As long as you don't take too much of it. That's right. Now, for, unfortunately, some of your patients uh, come with advanced cancer, I'm sure, and that's what people dread. Our, our listenership is very worried about what to do when they have cancer. Are things moving forward in terms of treatment for advanced cancers? Absolutely. And, you know, I, I will tell you, having now practiced GI oncology, gastrointestinal cancer treatment for 25 years, I actually think this is a very exciting time. So, for instance, for colon cancer, where um, we've essentially tripled the survival patient diagnosed with metastatic or advanced colon cancer in just the past decade. And what does that mean, triple? Does that mean people are living three times longer? Or does that mean three times as many people are being cured? Well, the cure rate, unfortunately, is still low in terms of eradicating the cancer. But yes, people are living three times longer. With it's, metastatic cancer. With metastatic cancer. Now, it's not sufficient. And we want to get to the point of curing people. But it's a meaningful difference. I can tell you, as somebody who has worked with patients and families, it's a very different outlook where people can live their lives much longer and successfully with these cancers. We got to do better. But I think the evolution has been treatments now that are based on a sound understanding of the biology of colon cancer. Because for too long in the solid tumor world, and not in the hematologic, the blood-based cancers that you and your colleagues have been so successful in, but I think in, in my world, in more of the solid tumors like colon cancer, it's been sort of taking a drug off the shelf and trying it. Um, right. And we really learned from people like yourself, Steve, that like leukemia, if you really understand what's driving it biologically, you get better treatments. And so we figured it out that that's what we needed to do. And so the treatments that we've been testing and developing now are really based on that understanding. And so they're much more effective. When we get into clinical trial, the, the likelihood of success of testing new drugs is much higher because there's really a sound basis for testing it. And the drugs are really making meaningful differences. And so I think now with the advent of precision medicine, where we're now at Yale routinely sequencing patients' tumors so that we can best inform the best treatment for that patient's colon cancer, and where we're starting to advance other novel treatments like immune-based approaches, new small molecules that target the individual genes. I think it's, it's a very different and exciting landscape for the treatment of patients with colon cancer. And I'd say we're doing the same now in patients with esophagus and stomach cancer, where we have a variety of new drugs, where frankly in that area, immune-based therapies is a really exciting and novel idea. But we're doing it in the other, including pancreas cancer. We have a lot more work to do. 
But I'm very optimistic about the future for patients with these cancers. What can patients do to make sure that their tumors are being studied appropriately in a way that can help them, way that can help their oncologists choose the right therapies? Or is this not something that's quite ready for prime time that people need to worry about? I think for a patient who's diagnosed with a newly diagnosed metastatic colon cancer, they should be routinely having their tumor analyzed for mutations in the DNA of the tumor. Uh, it informs treatment today, right? So the data are available now. We can make better treatment decisions with that information. So I think we need to have that conversation with your oncologist. This is something we should be routinely doing for all patients because it really can make a difference today. I'm not talking pie in the sky. Treatment decisions can be made more logical and more effective with that information. And if it wasn't done right out of the gate, as long as there's some tissue stored, which most, path most pathology labs have, that can usually be done post hoc, right? Absolutely. It's not too late. So for patients who might or family members that might be hearing this now, sure. You know, if it hasn't been done yet, that's fine. Sit down with your doc and make a plan to take the tissue that was stored away and get it analyzed. Dr. Charles Fuchs is director of the Yale Cancer Center and physician-in-chief at Smilo Cancer Hospital. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.